Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today we'll hear about a song called Tom Dooley. It has everything. A love triangle, grisly murder, a manhunt, and a hanging. Hang down in your head and Oh boy, you're bound to die. And I speak with a ballad singer from southwestern Virginia. She and her husband managed the pandemic and new parenthood by live streaming stories and lullabies. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. And we'll hear from another ballad singer who uses the tradition in protests and marches. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're airing an encore episode, which includes a lot of music. Ballads, lullabies, and folk songs. But first, we have a couple updates. This is my last show with you guys, and I've decided to permanently return to Wyoming, my home state. And I'll tell you a little more about that later at the end of the show. But first, an interview with West Virginia native Becca Spence Tobias. She wrote a novel called On Home. In it, the main character also returns home. She's a young queer woman living in Southern California, but she has to go back home to West Virginia after tragedy strikes. It's a place she thought she'd left behind forever. Here's Becca. On Home is about three women from three generations. There's a grandmother, Jane, a mother, Paloma, and then the contemporary story um, character, Cassidy. And they all have these connections to this small town in West Virginia, the canon where I'm from. And they all kind of experiment with being away or have experiences being away from the canon and then find themselves back there. And the central struggle of the book is just like this tension between like the safety and stability and like the knownness of being in this small place in West Virginia, like the struggle between wanting that and wanting to like be away somewhere bigger and the freedom and anonymity that comes with that. Yeah, definitely. And like each chapter takes on the perspective of one of those three women and they each kind of have a different story to share with their relationship to the state. Why did you end up deciding to take that approach? So um, kind of the interplay between those three stories, I think, are what show, you know, not just their individual stories, but also like these relationships of daughter, mother, grandmother, like how they kind of make us think about like, what do we owe the generations before us and how do one generation's decisions about whether to stay or whether to leave a place affect our own life path and our own like obligation to stay or to go. Which is such an interesting thread because I think no matter where you're from, you probably can relate to that, right? Like whether even you end up leaving home or staying home, there's kind of always that complicated relationship of that it brings you back to your childhood and perhaps really positive memories, but there's also frustrating parts of home, really wherever you're from. 
did you feel like it was playing off your own relationship with West Virginia? You, you live in California now. How did that kind of affect your book? Yeah. So that, I mean, that's what it's about. (laughs) I'm not even going to (laughs) lie. The book is fiction, (laughs) but um, I mean, I feel like that's the central like question in my story is like my relationship to West Virginia and to home and to finding a place to belong. And I was kind of struggling with that right before I got pregnant with my son and I was visiting West Virginia and I kind of had the first idea for this book, which was a line about um, the streets feeling like my own neural pathways. So that was like a personal sentence that I wrote. And then it kind of developed from there into this whole other world. Becca, I'm wondering if I can have you read a section that I think kind of drives this point home. It's from the perspective of Cassidy. And she's been living in Southern California. But then after, you know, some different events and a tragedy. She finds herself pregnant and thinking about moving back home to West Virginia, Um, something that really would have seemed unthinkable maybe even six months or a year earlier. The Pomeranian sniffed the air and licked its thin lips, and Cassidy thought of the classmates she would run into, her parents' friends, and the people at the courthouse protest. Everyone from Buchanan would be so smug about her coming home. But, she resolved, she was going to become a better person. Grandma Jane would always let Cassidy back in. Paloma would always let her back in. Simon would always let her back in. And in a way Cassidy understood but couldn't articulate, West Virginia would always let her back in. Has that been something you've kind of thought about when you've considered West Virginia and your relationship? That there is always a part of you that's there and that gets you, I guess. Yeah, I spoke during another interview about like this understanding of an unconditional belonging uh, to West Virginia and to Buchanan in particular. And it's something, I guess that's a constant in my life. It's something that I've really um, learned to take comfort in that it doesn't matter how long I'm away or that I left, that I'm always, I'm always a part of the town and whenever I go back, I know people and they know me and I'm always a part of that town story. It's really comforting to me. In the book, you get into some other topics that are kind of in the political conversation these days. You 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 get into, you know, access to abortion, um, the opioid epidemic as well. Can you read a section that kind of gets at the opioid crisis? Cassidy, she's been away and West Virginia's kind of been out of sight, out of mind. And she comes home and she's going to visit her best friend from growing up. And he lives with his mother and brother. And when Cassidy gets there, it's clear that there's a problem. Indeed, the home looked like it always had. Boxes of camel lights stacked high on the kitchen counter, a small sink overflowing with dirty dishes. Stacks of Us Weekly lay scattered on the floor in the place a coffee table might be in another home. And filthy ashtrays were everywhere. The floor, the table, the arms of the love seat and recliner. There was something different about it, though, a quality of disarray that Cassidy couldn't quite place. It had always been dirty, the kind of place that made her feel older than she was when she hung out there as a teenager, but this was different. She noticed something else then. Scattered among the cigarettes, the magazines, the ashtrays, and the dirty dishes were empty pill containers, many on their sides, their tops long gone, 
others stacked neatly in lines the way a child might lay out blocks. Um, and so I wrote this kind of thinking about how, like, since I've moved away, the opioid epidemic is something that feels like kind of abstract and far away. But, you know, like, for so many people that I still care very much about, it's not abstract, it's very, very real. And so I kind of wanted to capture the feeling of like, that re-realization that happens to me sometimes. And I think some of that is to show like, it's not just this straightforward, <laughs> I don't want to just romanticize that return to home. Right. In some ways, it's good that she left. In some ways, it's good that I left, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Becca, is there a section you would like to share at all? The weight of the canon, of all of it, of her dad and her grandma and her mom's hippie friends, of how Paloma had said she'd never loved Ken, of the mine disaster and Simon's mom and brother, and just all of it. It was crushing. Pretend was light and free. Real was suffocating. The canon was more than a place now. It was a mass pressing down with all the heaviness of all of those awful things. It was a place where the unthinkable could happen, and Simon was too much a part of it. And so this is actually kind of similar to what <laughs> I was just saying, I guess. Um, you know, you mentioned that Cassidy is really considering coming home, going back to West Virginia in part of this book. And um, and in a way, that's like a wish fulfillment. You know, like fiction can be <laughs> wish fulfillment in a lot of ways. Um, and then... But Simon in the book kind of represents my real relationship with West Virginia. And so when I feel defensive, I guess, about the fact that I left or that I left and didn't come back, um, I guess Simon is kind of my way of explaining why that why that was not the right path for me. And Simon being her kind of childhood best friend. What, what, what do you hope West Virginians who read the book would would take away from it? So like I said, like I feel I feel defensive. I feel a little guilty sometimes about my choice to leave. The book is almost like an apology and an explanation in some ways. <laughs> like a way to say, I see you, I love you. I know your experiences and your lives are are valid and real and worthwhile and part of me would have loved to have made my life with you. Um you know, so I hope that people can see that in the book. What about people who aren't from West Virginia and maybe haven't even ever been to Appalachia? What what would you kind of hope they take away from the book? You know, it's interesting being here in California and the way that people respond when they find out I'm from West Virginia and because they make assumptions when they obviously they can see that I left. Um, I don't really have an accent anymore. They assume that we're like, in solidarity in a way like about West Virginia as a joke which <laughs> really <laughs> makes me mad so like they'll ask me where I'm from and I'll tell them and they'll be like oh ho, 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 glad you left there or whatever wow like that kind of thing and it's hard to not get angry yeah about that um so I hope that people who read this book I just hope that they take Appalachia more seriously after reading it and yeah and just it's not a joke, you know, it's not, it's not a punchline. Um, but I also kind of feel like that's like a big burden to put on one book. And I don't necessarily want to think that my book is like the best thing that can change people's minds or hearts about that. But I hope it's one of many things 
And if mine is the only thing that they're exposed to, then I hope it can start that process. That was Becca Spence Tobias speaking with me about her book On Home. It's out now. Now we're going to listen back to an episode we originally aired last summer and another story about returning home. If you're a regular listener to Inside Appalachia, there's a good chance you've heard Anna and Elizabeth. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, you little baby. When you wake, get some cake and ride them pretty little horses. A black and a bay, a sorrel and a gray, a holy That would be Anna Roberts DeVault, who's now based in Brooklyn, and Elizabeth Laprell, who grew up in rural retreat, Virginia just a ways down the road from me. I used to sing this song, Heap of Horses, to my son when he was a newborn. And when I got to interview Elizabeth several years ago, I made sure to ask her for more recommendations of songs to sing to babies. Like this one from Elizabeth's 2004 album, Rain and Snow. Come all ye fair and tender ladies, take warning. Well, now my son's 10, and Elizabeth's got a son of her own, and she's still singing. She and her husband, Brian Dolphin, moved from Brooklyn back to southwestern Virginia just before the pandemic hit. As longtime performers and new parents, they started posting weekly live streams of stories and lullabies. We do have a short, we have a short live stream tonight. Um, just one song, one little song. It may or may not be... Uh, a song by Tears for Fears called Mad World. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out places, bright early I spoke with Elizabeth to find out more about why she first started singing and how that's changed with parenthood and a pandemic. We'll start by hearing one of her big influences, Texas Gladden of Southwestern Virginia, singing a version of the ballad Barbara Allen. Away down yonder in London town, that's where I got my learning. I fell in love with a nice young girl. Her name was Barbara Allen. So it started for me at a pretty young age, but I think my first memories of ballads as such, like knowing that they were stories and being interested in learning them and actually learning them and singing them would have been around 10 or 11 years old. I learned Barbara Allen and I sang it at like my summer camp talent show. Go tell him I am coming As she went walking through the room She heard some bells a-ringing 
Can you tell me about what led you away from rural retreat for a few years? I mean, the short answer is actually just touring, (laughs) Um, just being a musician and trying to live as a musician. So I I went away for college. And uh, after four years there, I went back to rural retreat. I really missed the mountains and um, wanted to focus on music and didn't have a, a better idea than going back to live on my parents' farm. But sometimes even more of the year than I was at home, I would be out traveling uh, on tour, mostly around the U.S., but also going overseas. So I was doing shows in the duo, Anna and Elizabeth. God said Hezekiah, a message from on high, you better get your house in order. Or you must surely die He turned to the wall and weeping We see him there in tears He got his business fixed all right God spared him 15 years There's a little black train coming Fix all your business right little black train coming and it could be here tonight Anna moved from southwestern Virginia to Baltimore so we would do a lot of our work uh, around there as well and then from Baltimore she went to New York City to she moved to Brooklyn and then um, about a year after she moved to Brooklyn I also moved to Brooklyn to uh, to be with my now husband, uh, th- then boyfriend. So we uh, spent a couple years um, based out of the city, pretty different environment. And again, you know, touring a lot and, and coming back to Virginia just for visits. A couple years ago, you moved back. What was it that brought, that brought you and Brian to, to Southwest Virginia again? Uh, having our kid, we thought, well, hey, you know, why don't we go... We spent a couple years in New York. Why don't we go to our place in Virginia? You know, we could be on the farm. That seems like a nice place to have uh, a young child and we'll be near my parents, uh, Noah's grandparents, um, for a little while. And so when Noah was just a couple months old, we, we went down south and moved. And then couple months after that, uh, big pandemic. <laughs> we had kind of thought we would travel a little bit more um, last year and uh, also maybe look for another place to live, potentially a smaller city, but still, you know, someplace a little close, maybe between New York and Virginia. But we, did, we didn't have the opportunity to look for that because uh, we were in Virginia and we pretty much stayed there and, and hunkered down. Hey, I'm a little bit, I'm interested to hear you elaborate a little more on the pandemic and just how it affected you all as, you know, as parents of a young child, as performing musicians, um, whose income depended in part on being able to tour. What's, what's that been like? Well, just m- mostly enormous changes, um, not least of which just, you know, getting married and, and having a kid is, is really huge. Um, so even before the pandemic, I had done a pretty big pivot to not traveling as much. When Noah was a young infant, I really wanted to be home, and I just didn't have anything planned. So we were we were probably gonna we were gonna start getting out of our 
kind of parental bubble in March uh, of 2020. Um, so we didn't. Um, I, I've been doing, I'd already been doing uh, lessons um, online. And so I just made that my whole thing. <laughs> um, and uh, I've actually really enjoyed uh, teaching a bit more and teaching one-on-one. -on -one. That wasn't something that was in my skill set necessarily. I'd done a lot of workshops, but not a lot of private lessons, and I like them. So I think I'm going to continue that even as things open up more. My husband and I started doing a weekly live stream. So uh, sometimes we read stories aloud and, and mostly we sing, you know, one to three songs just on Facebook uh, for whoever is, is tuning in at that moment. Bless you. That's gross. You sneeze on your daddy. Hello. Hello. We are here. It is 9 p.m. We're going to do story and song to get ready for beddy. We're so tired. We're so tired. We're so sleepy. tired. We just rub our eyes down sometimes. <laughs> and then hopefully we get tricked into thinking that that feels really good when our eyes are so closed, closed. and sleepy. Or we turn our heads away. Okay. We fight it. Yeah. Oh, this is called So You Would Not Be Alone. starting to get the Facebook memories from this is from one year ago. And I, I look at, you know, it's, it's us a year ago holding like our itty bitty, you know, bread loaf sized baby <laughs> instead of, you know, now we just wait till he's asleep because he has normal sleep hours now. Yeah. I don't know. It's also just very hard as a parent. It's hard to be isolated just in your family. Um, it's really really, really, really clear to me how much you really need community uh, as a parent and how the care of a child really should be spread um, over more people than just two. <laughs> hmm. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. I'm totally losing my melody. I'm just so excited. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Oh, little dear. Little, little dear. Oh, little dear. 
Oh, little deer. Oh, little deer. Little, little deer. He loves it. Oh, little deer. Oh, little deer. Oh, little deer. Little, little deer. Oh, little deer. Oh, little deer. Elizabeth Laparel and her husband, Brian Dolphin, have new music out with a new group called Duran. It pulls together a lot of different threads, from Appalachian ballads to Eastern European choral music. Check it out. We've posted a link on our website, wvpublic.org. I met her on the mountain. There I took her life. Met her on the mountain. Stabbed her with my knife. What you're hearing is the Kingston Trio's version of the famous American ballad, Tom Dooley. Somehow, this song from shortly after the Civil War struck a universal chord 60 years ago when it topped the Billboard charts. It has everything. A love triangle, a grisly murder, a manhunt, and a hanging. Reporter Heather Duncan set out to explore why ballads like Tom Dooley still capture our imagination. In my hometown, Tom Dooley was personal. I'm from Wilkes County, North Carolina, the mountain home of the man whose real name was Tom Dula. It was here that he was arrested for killing his girlfriend, Laura Foster, who was rumored to be pregnant. And from the way people talk about it, you might think these events happened yesterday, not 150 years ago. The Dula family, if you talk to them, Tom Dula is innocent. If you talk with the Foster family, Laura Foster is almost, you know, sainthood. That's Karen Reynolds, who wrote a long-running outdoor drama about the tragedy. Her great-great-grandfather owned a store in the Elkmont community where the murder happened. She went to school with doulas and fosters. When I wrote characters, I knew how those family members felt about things. I was privy as a young girl to listening to the actual family members give their take on the story. Today, you can still start a debate about whether doula's other married girlfriend, Anne Melton, was truly the guilty one. My hometown paper even campaigned for the governor to pardon Tom Dula. 130 years after the murder. My own family was caught up in the drama, too. My dad was a guitarist fascinated by old ballads, and I tagged along when he visited the graves of Tom and Laura. A few years before he died, Dad wrote his own song about Laura Foster for Karen's play. The mist of the morning hangs low in the sky A whippoorwill calls hello goodbye Down a path a horse makes its way the maid of the morning's wedding day. It all made me wonder, how do ballads keep these long-ago events so immediate? You may hear it the day after, or ten years after, or two centuries after the event. But the ballad is like a time capsule. That's Bill Ferris, a folklore professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina. He told me that ballads first came to Appalachia from the British Isles, where for centuries they were printed on long sheets of paper called broadsides. Those sheets were hung on a long stick, 
And if you bought one, the seller pulled off one sheet and gave it to you. And those were often composed even before hangings or public events. And as soon as the event occurred, the ballad would go out and be sold all over the countryside. These songs, says Ferris, were in part a way to share explosive local news. When we look at broadside ballads, those really could be compared to social media today in that they were a quick and easy way to spread news. And they were filled with all kind of gory details. They often depicted tragedies, ranging from hangings to train wrecks to weather events like tornadoes and hurricanes. Ted Olson, a balladeer and Appalachian Studies professor, says ballads helped communities process these tragedies. When disasters happened, people had to psychologically cope with the aftermath, the death and the destruction, the interruption to people's everyday lives. Ballads provided a way to cope with those circumstances. Here in North Carolina, the verses were rapidly published in newspapers. Then musicians set the words to popular tunes and themes that everybody already knew, like noble outlaws or betrayed love. This made songs easy to remember, so they spread even among those who couldn't read. Otto Wood the Bandit, a famous ballad about a Wilkes County man with a genius for prison escapes, is a great example. Singers Cranford and Thompson recorded an early version in 1930, a month after Wood died in a gunfight, using the tune and theme of the Ballad of Jesse James. Then their guns began to roar Through his windshield bullets tore Eleven from revolvers in his head And the last from Rankin went Into Otto it was sent Then the news was heard that Otto Wood is dead Trevor McKenzie wrote a book about Otto Wood set for publication this fall. You have this ballad that is to the tune of Jesse James, which people know, and it recounts this larger-than-life character who has just died in this sensational way. Sort of Old West-style events happening in the middle of several parked cars on the streets in Salisbury, North Carolina. So why do ballads like these reverberate so long after their newsworthiness has faded? For folklorist Ted Olson, they offer a bridge to other times. The reason why I personally love to sing them is that I feel connected to people and places far in the past. They may have had the immediacy and personal opinion of social media, but they required more thought, length, and poetry. And I can't imagine reciting a Twitter statement in 100 years or 200 years. I think that a ballad is communication that has universality in its essence, or it wouldn't survive. Today, these stories are kept alive in my community largely through yearly outdoor dramas, written and performed by locals. Before she wrote the Tom Dooley play, Karen Reynolds invited descendants of the main characters to share family details. When locals come to see the play, they can tell. They'll have their 90-year-old grandmother that was just dying to see this, that still remembers her family talking about this. And they'll all look at me and say, this is the way I always heard it. And that's all I need. That satisfies me. Wilkes County has embraced these criminals as part of its cultural heritage. Trevor McKenzie played in the band for some of the productions of the Otto Wood outdoor drama. There's sort of a a community infrastructure around these ballads of celebrating these things as community events. They brought people together who many of them had sort of a background and deep Wilkes County roots where they could connect with these stories in a way that could convey them with a sort of power. What I've come to realize is that, unlike the news, ballads aren't just a gathering of facts and they aren't just entertainment. 
They're part of the long-term process of creating a shared identity. That's the root of their staying power in my hometown. By telling and retelling these stories to each other, arguing back and forth, we're also saying, this is where I'm from. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Duncan. Hang your head, Tom Dooley. Hang your head and cry. Kill for Laura Foster. You know you're bound to die. Heather Duncan is one of our Folkways reporters. We should add that Trevor McKenzie, who we heard from in that story, is also a member of our Folkways reporting project. Coming up, we'll hear about a project that tells the history of the West Virginia mine wars through music. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Oh, say, did you see him? It was early this morning. He passed by your house as on his way to the coal. He was tall, he was slender, and his dark eyes so tender. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. I was feeding the children when mostly came running to bring us the news. Last year marked the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain in southern West Virginia. It was the culmination of over two decades of fighting between coal miners and their employers over the workers' right to belong to a union. Today, we know that series of conflicts as the West Virginia Mine Wars. That history is told in a collection of ballads called Blair Pathways. Asheville-based musician and folklorist Sarah Lynch Thomason collected the songs and produced the album. Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Rebecca Williams talked with Thomason about the project. The lot of the miner at best is quite hard. We work for good money, get paid with a card. We scarcely can live and not a cent more. Since we're paid off in checks on the company store. Sarah, will you tell us about the song, The Company Store? It was very common for coal miners and their families to live in company-run towns. And so the house that you rented, you paid rent to the mine owners for that house. And then the dry goods store, or the store you would have gotten your food and your, and your clothes and your textiles... That was also run by the company. They keep cutting our wages time after time. Where we once had a dollar, we now have a dime. While our souls are near famished and our bodies are sore, we are paid off in checks on the company store. The song The Company Store was submitted as a poem um, to the United Mine Workers Journal, which was run by the United Mine Workers of America, the union, uh, back in 1895. And it was was written by a coal miner named Isaac Hanna. And this poem is a long complaint about 
how criminal <laughs> the mine operators were in, in running company-run stores. What other things were miners complaining about back then? Working as a miner in the coal industry in the late 19th and early 20th century was really dangerous work. Things like roof falls or exposure to methane gas and, and the risk of explosions, all of that was much more common than it needed to be. And so, you know, we know that thousands and thousands of people died in the industry just during this period. Why did you decide to include an Italian labor song on Blair Pathways? Stornelli di Asilio is written by an Italian anarchist named Pietro Gori. Many people don't realize that a large portion of the people who were mining coal in West Virginia in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were Southern and uh, Eastern European immigrants. And those immigrant cultures and communities also brought far-left politics. There are also significant numbers of African-American mining families in these coal camps, right? Yes, some of these miners had come up from the Deep South through recruitment campaigns or just looking to get out of uh, sharecropping systems. Some of these African-American workers had come into the state um, helping to build the railroads. These workers were often also very invested in unionizing and came into elected positions in the United Mine Workers of America. One of the major strikes of the West Virginia Mine Wars took place on Paint and Cabin Creeks in 1912 and 1913 where there were numerous deadly battles and skirmishes. Tell us about Walter Seacrest, who lived through that strike and wrote the song Law in the West Virginia Hills. As a child, he actually lived in a strike camp. And as an adult, he joined the union and he started writing songs about his experiences of the Cold Wars. These miners banded together on one warm sunny July day. They laid aside their shovels and picks And they struck for better pay Then the company gun thugs came Officers from all around Drove the miners from their house and home Kicked their wives and children down The song mentions wives and children So we know that it wasn't just male miners involved in these strikes. You included a song written by a woman from Kentucky in 1932. Listen, friends and comrades, I have some very sad news. I am locked up in prison with a lonesome jailhouse blues. Lonesome Jailhouse Blues was written by a woman named Aunt Molly Jackson, and she wrote this song when she had been organizing with the National Miners Union, which was a communist union, and uh, was put in prison for that organizing work. Many women uh, were organizers and were really the backbone of strikes. So how were women involved in the paint and Cabin Creek strike? Women um, would often go down to the train stations and um, harass or sometimes attack or at least shame the replacement workers who were coming in. And women would also hold down picket lines in front of the mines. And on top of that, they were doing things like committing sabotage. Women uh, would go and tear up, you know, the rail lines so that trains exporting coal from the region couldn't run. 
1921, these decades of conflicts boiled over into a full-scale war during the week-long Battle of Blair Mountain, which is often called the largest armed insurrection in U.S. history since the Civil War. What strikes me about these conflicts is that you just have to get to a place where you feel like you have no other options. To do something like risking your life, essentially by going to war, really means that you have nothing else to lose. I noticed that your album Blair Pathways doesn't include a song about the battle itself. Why is that? You know, I think there's different reasons why there may not be a song. Events like this are also traumatic, and people want to forget about them. People did die in this battle. Um, It was a battle that people had to be pretty secretive about if they were involved. It's not something you necessarily wanted to let all your neighbors know about. So I think there would have been reasons to to not talk about the fact that this, this enormous uprising had taken place. One of the last songs on the album is called Hold On. It was one that you and others sang as you marched to Blair Mountain back in 2011. Why were you marching to Blair Mountain? One goal was to promote the need for sustainable jobs in West Virginia. The other goal was to try and save Blair Mountain because Blair was endangered of uh, being strip mined for coal and this really important, you know, historic battle site and it needs to be preserved. So the march uh, took about a week and we were in 90 to 100 degree weather and music and song uh, became a really powerful part of the march. People started to really understand how songs could bring people together and really vindicate and enliven uh, the work they were doing. You helped lead the singing on the march. Why did you choose this song in particular? It's such a great song to sing in groups and it's really structured in a way where you can create new verses. Back in August of 21, did what had to be done. It comes from African American traditions, and in the civil rights movement, verses were adapted to be about that movement. Sarah, what did you take away from studying the mind wars and immersing yourself in this music? I think I came away with a better understanding of how complex these conflicts were and how important it was that that people know that they happened. Without that labor history, we wouldn't have things like the eight-hour workday and safety standards at work. And we wouldn't have any of those things if all these different labor movements hadn't taken place. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this and to revisit this history in time for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. My brother was a man in man, toiling almost day and night. Deep down in those old cold mines, far away from God's sunlight, to this valley came I. Should mention Sarah Lynch Thomason was also one of our Folkways reporters back in 2019. And we're going to have Sarah back next month. She's helping guest host an episode all about ballad singing. Stay tuned for that show, which will air in May.
close out our show with a story from one of West Virginia's most famous storytellers, Ruth Ann Music. Music was known as, quote, a public relations agent for West Virginia folklore. She brought energy and passion to documenting the state's rich storytelling tradition. And this led to five books and dozens of short stories. Now, decades after music collected these tales, they've been told and retold by storytellers across our region, including Eileen Evans. She's based in Thomas, West Virginia. Here's Evans telling one of music's stories called Big Max. Little girl, if you were mine, wouldn't do none but starch and Big Max is a foreman for a large construction well, company in Cleveland, Ohio now. He was a brown-skinned black man, about six and one-half feet tall, weighing about 250 pounds. So it's easy to see how he got his name. And wherever he goes, it's not long before his name follows him. And when he worked in the mines, Big Max was known for his strength. He used to run from the Osage mine where he worked to his home, ten miles each way. And one time, a motor car fell on a man and pinned him from the waist down, and Big Max lifted that car all by himself, and saved that man's life. He could load more coal than six ordinary men, and he would stay in the mine for days, for as long as a week sometimes. And it seemed as though nothing could hurt him. One day, there was a bad cave-in in the section where he was working, and everybody was killed but Big Max. And when the men found him, he had dug himself halfway out. Some of the miners looked on him as a kind of god of the mines. But Big Max left the coal mines, and this is the story of why he told Ruth Ann Music's father. He said, after that big explosion that closed off Section 5 of the main run, all the men were either killed or accounted for except one. He was never found. His time card wasn't punched in or out, and the mine officials would not pay his wife the welfare money because they thought he had deserted her. Well, anyway, I opened up the section and went in first to check and see if it was still hot. Our main job was to set in the new beams and clean up the section so new track could be laid. And after I checked the place completely for gas, I started helping the other men set the beams. In one of the subsections was a bad place, and since none of the other fellows wanted to chance putting in the new beams, I said I'd go ahead and set in the first one for them. I went back into this dark section and was getting ready to put in the first beam when one of the fellows come back to help. I said, oh, so you're not afraid after all? He said, no. And it was then I noticed that I'd never seen him before. He didn't look like a miner, at least not like a healthy one. His skin, even though it was covered with coal dust, was milkish white, and his eyes were set deep in his head like deep pools. And although he could do as much work as me... He was just a bag of bones. And after we put up the first beam, I started cleaning the place for a second beam. And the man who was helping me grabbed the shovel and said, Don't put that post there. Put it here. He said it real mad, like, so to keep it down an argument, I started doing what I was told. And I had cleaned out about a foot of loose coal and slate when I hit something. It looked like a boot, like a man's boot. Just as I turned around to tell my helper that I'd found the remains of a man, he disappeared. I didn't particularly think about it because I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me since I hadn't been to bed for three days. 
And then, too, I thought he might have got scared and gone back. Well, anyway, I reported the body to the authorities and went home. And in the middle of the night, I was sleeping soundly when there was a knock at the door. I went and opened it and discovered it was the same fella at the mine who had been helping me. And he said, thank you. Thank you for helping me. But now my wife can get what's coming to her. And then he disappeared again out into the night. I got dressed and went down to the mine to see just who this fella was that I'd discovered. He was a man who'd been missing. They could tell by his minor's tags. Well, I left that mine. And I have never and shall never set foot in a mine again. Hey, like we mentioned earlier in the show, we're working on a new episode all about Appalachian ballads and the history behind the stories they tell. Stay tuned for that show, which airs in May. Ballad singer Sarah Lynch Thomason will guest host that show with me. And as I mentioned earlier, this is my last show with you guys. I recently accepted a job with Wyoming Public Radio reporting on energy and the coal industry there. And I just wanted to say that My time with you all has meant the world to me. Thank you for listening and accepting me. Caitlin, I was new to radio when we both started it inside Appalachia, and I have learned so much from you. No matter where we go from here, you have profoundly affected my journalism and the way I approach radio. Thank you. And listeners, we'll still hear Caitlin from time to time as we rerun older episodes. So you want to say the line one last time? (laughs) Yeah. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Elizabeth Laprell, Brian Dolphin, Anna and Elizabeth, Sarah Lynch Thomason, Grayson and Witter, and the Kingston Trio. Roxy Todd is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixers, Patrick Stevens, Xander Alloy, also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.